Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist scholar and virtues and vices enthusiast. Today starts the beginning of the Old Books with Grace Lent series on the virtues and vices. Yes, I know it's not quite Lent yet, but to fit everything I needed to fit, we had to start a week early. Consider this your bonus week. Imagine yourself as a 14th century English villager during the Lent season. Whether you live in a sleepy agricultural village, a busy little market town, or the hubbub of London itself, you're preparing your heart for the great Paschal feast, for Easter and its season of celebration. In this period in history, unless you were an especially devout individual, you would have taken the Eucharist once a year, on Good Friday. To take Christ's body once a year meant there was a lot of pressure on being ready. With the assistance of your local priest, you would prepare yourself for the presence of Jesus through the sacrament of penance. First, you reflected on your sins with regret, called contrition. Then, you confessed those sins to the priest, sometimes with help sometimes prompted. Then, if you needed to do penance through prayer or pilgrimage or public apology or something else, you did that as well. And then, at last, you could take communion with a clear conscience that you were not disrespecting Jesus. But all kinds of practical matters intervene, which worried medieval folk. What if you forgot a vice? I mean, if you're only doing this once a year, that's a lot of pressure. Or what if you knew you struggled with something but didn't know the best way to combat it? Remember, this was long before therapy and broadcast media. In the Middle Ages, in response to this issue, a very popular genre of writing sprang up. Penitential manuals, meant to help priests aid their parishioners in examining their conscience or for lay people themselves to explore the moral quandaries that face the soul and the body. These handbooks described the sacraments as well as the vices that people were likely to succumb to, or the virtues that would help them become more like Christ. Some of these wonderfully bizarre, at times very colorful and at times very dull, books survive to this day. And that's a lot of what I read for this series and what I use to help us dig down into these concepts. We don't want to cultivate the anxiety of don't miss a sin for fear of offending the Lord. Such crushing pressure takes its own tolls and contemporary medieval writers like Julian of Norwich um, had some thoughts about the unhelpfulness in a lot of ways of this kind of pressure put on penance and confession. But we do, like our medieval friends, and like Julian of Norwich and those other critics, want to know ourselves, need to know ourselves. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to prepare our hearts for the resurrection. And these manuals, with their lists of virtues and vices and human behaviors, give us an unusual, provocative, and sometimes really strangely helpful window into human nature and gifts. There are many ways of telling the story of how the catalogs and schemata of vices and virtues developed, 
but roughly two paths in the Christian tradition that cross, converge, and diverge throughout the years. One begins with Plato, Aristotle, and the ancient Greek philosophers, roughly 400 years before the birth of Christ. Aristotle, in particular, developed a robust theory of virtue, oriented towards the good of the polis, the city. So we meet the beginnings of the idea of the common good. He codifies the four cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. The Romans, too, liked these ideas and picked them up. Yet, they understood that the life of virtue was reserved exclusively for men, and not all men, citizens of the city. Women and enslaved people could not really practice the virtues, insisted Aristotle. All right, then, moving on. Another story of the virtues and vices begins in the desert of Egypt with the birth of Christian monasticism. About 300 years or so after the death of Christ, people like St. Antony began to withdraw to the desert to build communities based on a life of asceticism and vows of poverty. In that process, people like Evagrius, John Cashin, and Ama Theodora began to compile pastoral aids for resisting the temptations of the desert. For the desert fathers and mothers knew, the desert leaves you nowhere to hide. When one retreats from society, from the ever-changing company and views and products and foods and friends, one is left with her own thoughts for company. You're faced with the temptations deep inside you that you manage to hide from yourself, or at the very least hide from others. These desert fathers and mothers began to list these temptations and their characteristics in the format that we sometimes call the seven deadly sins, pride or vainglory, envy, wrath, sloth, lust, gluttony, and greed. Rebecca Conendict Young, author of The Glittering Vices, which I can't recommend enough if you're interested in the vice and virtue traditions and which I quote from throughout this series, writes that a better, more historically accurate name for the seven deadly sins are the seven capital vices. Why capital? Capital comes from the Latin word for head, um, as in the English term, say, fountainhead. The idea of the beginning or the root of something. So think of a capital letter at the beginning of a sentence. It's not that these vices list in exhaustive detail every possible sin, but that these are the roots, the sources of all the vicious actions we can think of. Unlike Aristotle's list of virtues, this list of vices emerges from pastoral care, that is, from the leaders of spiritual communities learning how to care for and spiritually direct the men and women under their guidance, not from theory. So it focuses on people's actions, on obstacles held in common that we face as we learn to follow Jesus, and ways to combat these temptations and actions. It also means that this list is sometimes unhelpfully vague and fascinatingly flexible. The seven capital vices was picked up as useful and pertinent, especially in the lives of community, 
by some of the great pastoral thinkers of the early Middle Ages, like Pope Gregory the Great or St. Benedict. By the late Middle Ages, it was ubiquitous as a pastoral tool, used in the way I describe at the beginning of this episode. These penitential materials listed the seven capital vices in great detail, often with wonderfully weird, sometimes terrifying or disgusting um, example, ex- examples, exempla, I combine the two words with them. Alongside these seven capital sins, by this point, writers had paired remedies, virtues from scriptural sources and antiquity, um, particularly the, the Beatitudes, to go with them and combat the vices themselves. This list fluctuates quite a bit, but here's the base of it. Humility, love, patience or meekness, perseverance or strength, generosity, abstinence, and chastity. On the theoretical level, brilliant medieval theologians like St. Thomas Aquinas began to take these pastoral tools of thinking about vice and virtue, habits, and human behavior, and juxtapose them with some of the more theoretical ideas about the life of human happiness postulated by Aristotle and his Arabic commentators back in the day. And by the way, a lot of Aristotle's writing only comes to us through Arabic preservation, which is another different and hugely fascinating story. By the 14th century in England, Scholars, priests, poets, contemplatives, and ordinary lay people were all wrestling with these ideas in their daily lives, using them to think about their own behavior, what they owed to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and how their own lives might become transformed. At this point, you might be asking yourself a few questions. As we know, not everything from the past is worth preserving. What's this ancient way of thinking about human behavior worth to us today when we have so much new and wonderful information on human behavior in general? What even is a vice or a virtue, strictly speaking? Both vices and virtues are habits, something we do over and over until they become part of our character. They are unnatural or exterior to us at first, and then the more we do them, the more they become part of who we are and how we respond without thought. Habits can be practiced and cultivated or disrupted and destroyed over time. And as anyone knows who has tried to follow an exercise regimen or who has learned to read, this can be, it can be destroyed or created. A child at first can only read for a short period of time with a Bob book or a Dr. Seuss. And as they practice and practice, they progress to reading chapter books like the Boxcar Children or Laura Ingalls Wilder and further until they can pick up and actually enjoy in a sort of miracle, something as complex as Dostoevsky. Or it's like running. If I tried to run right now, I would make it a very dreadful five minutes before giving up. But some people train up to doing ultra marathons. Running has become a habit for them, loved for its own sake. 
So the repetition of a habit increases ease and skill, and we humans are creatures of habit in every sense. Even something that initially seems like it wouldn't be a habit, like spontaneity, for instance, can be a habit, as we see in folks who regularly seek out novelty or thrills or new hobbies for enjoyment. A virtue is a habit that makes us more human, more conforming to the image of God that we truly are. A vice, in contrast, is dehumanizing. It corrupts our humanity. It's a practice that corrodes and obscures the image of God. So vices and virtues are distinguished by their ends. One is directed towards love of God and neighbor and characterized by right reason. The other is directed towards love of self alone, and often even then it's not a real love of self. Both become parts of our character as people, which makes sense. We've all met individuals uniquely brave, bitterly angry, remarkably loyal, or eaten up by envy. We recognize it because that characterizes their typical response to challenging situations. These people aren't loyal once, brave once, or wrathful or envious once. Being habituated in virtue, practicing the virtues, requires teachers and mentors. We begin to recognize courage by looking at the lives, choices, and words of people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We can learn humility at the feet of St. Francis of Assisi or Julian of Norwich. And less famous people as well. We learn from parents, teachers, priests or pastors, siblings, even our own children. The famous moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre compares learning the virtues to a child learning chess. The adult teaching the child chess will explain moves, play with him, and reward him for trying and for well-done moves. These rewards could be candy or words of affirmation. And the child at first plays for these rewards because chess itself is challenging and tricky and not necessarily enjoyable at first. But as the child masters the game, the reward becomes the game itself. The child learns to love chess for its own sake. Through practicing virtue, we learn to love virtuous action, not for the rewards it gains us, but for the virtue itself. Because virtue is a habit, individual acts can be virtuous without the people themselves being virtuous. So, Take the classic example of courage. A soldier in World War I may go over the top of his trench in warfare, which is undoubtedly an act of bravery, but he himself may not be a courageous person or practicing true courage. He could just be following orders because he doesn't want to get shot for desertion. He may be chasing a thrill of adrenaline or pridefully looking to boost his reputation among his fellow soldiers. Maybe he just wants to slaughter Germans. So the virtues are not always easy to discern from observation alone. And virtuous people and virtuous actions do not all look the same. People who have weak or rotten characters can still perform a good act, as we all know and have seen. And similarly, people who have characters of kindness will still on occasion be cruel. 
Some have objected to the idea of the virtues and vices throughout history, and there's not space here to address them all in full. But here's a greatest hits version with greatest hits answers. Number one, are you saying I can will my way into goodness? Well, in part, but not really. As with anything, when we practice something, we get better at it. That's just the way we are. I can practice patience while driving in rush hour. My lack of yelling or honking or cursing might not be a virtue yet because I'm still doing it with a begrudging irritation. Eventually, hopefully, I lose the instinct to curse or yell at other drivers because I'm just not practicing that impulse. I endure the traffic. I'm practicing patient behavior. Yet, is it part of my character yet? Patience is not the absence of sorrow, irritation, or anger. Augustine of Hippo writes that to be patient is to bear evils inflicted upon oneself without inflicting them again on others. And one is not patient if one is simply waiting for their own opportunity to inflict evil. How can I not will evil to my enemies? How do I practice that? Patience is a full, complete thing of its own, and it comes by the grace of God and our practice in an act of cooperation. It reminds me of tending a garden. We pick a good location, we cultivate the soil, water our seedlings, and we clear the space of weeds. But we can't will the tomatoes onto the plants. The virtues, like our sanctification, like gardening, are a joint project between us and God a beautiful place where we participate in learning how to live well, but we are not the final word. We attempt to imitate Jesus, usually begrudgingly and half-heartedly, but he transforms our desires. And he loves us first and foremost, no matter how virtuous or vicious we are. Our virtues do not earn Christ's love. His love gives us the freedom to participate in our own process of becoming. Okay, objection number two. The virtues seem inequitable. It's a lot easier for some people to practice the virtues than others. Someone might argue anyone could be good if they had been well-fed, well-educated, and well-loved as a child. I have no answers for the varying difficulties of our lives and why some things are easy for some people and harder for others. So it's really important for us to realize that virtues and vices look different in everyone's life. Think of it this way. Everyone, regardless of their abilities, needs exercise to take care of their bodies. I don't have the gifts and training of LeBron James or Katie Ledecky, but it's crucial for a well-lived life that I learn how to take care of my body through exercise and proper nutrition. Similarly, the virtues are not one-size-fits-all. They're not a rule or a set of governing laws for behavior. The virtues contract and expand to fit individual lives and points in history. A six-year-old wouldn't go over the top of a trench, but I've known some pretty courageous six-year-olds nevertheless, and we can learn from them. Importantly, we also know that wealth and getting everything you ever wanted is no safeguard for the good life. The singer Billie Eilish has a song where she sings, I had a dream, I got everything I wanted and then admits that it might have been a nightmare. 
Some of the most viciously unhappy people in history have been rich and achieved their wildest dreams. Number three, in this series, I talk about concepts like wrath, meekness, envy, perseverance, abstinence, gluttony, and mercy, among others. <laughs> that list is quite the list, isn't it? Some of the words feel very unhelpfully old-fashioned. Some of them might set your teeth on edge, and not just the vices. What are we supposed to do with a so-called virtue like meekness, or a tricky vice like gluttony? These words have occasionally been co-opted and wielded like weapons to enforce culturally good behavior at different points in history. What woman today hears meekness without a little shudder at the shadow of patriarchal abuse? What person wrestling with body image hears gluttony without fear and dread? I'll let you into a secret. Very often, these words have not historically meant what we mean when we use them today. I'll be returning to some ancient and medieval friends to excavate meaning out of these difficult words, as well as brainstorming how they might apply to us today in nuanced but truthful ways. Many of these words are concepts worth reclaiming and adding back more robustly into our moral vocabulary. Number four. Finally, I've met some folks who just don't like the language of the virtues and vices because they feel like they're an extra biblical imposition, something made up by people to get people to act the way they think is good. There's no mention in the Bible of the seven capital vices or the four cardinal virtues or whatever schema you want to use. This is true in one sense, but on the other hand, the Bible is chock full of saints and sinners of beauty and evil, of failure and learning from these falls. It speaks of transformation and growth, of the fruits of the Holy Spirit and the life of love. The vices and virtues are another way to help us conceptualize these ideas. And Jesus himself embodies each and every one of the virtues. Why should we power through the discomfort or the confusion? Because learning about the vices and virtues helps us in our ongoing pilgrimage for sanctification, for becoming more like Jesus. The beauty of virtuous people is astounding. I want to learn more. I also think of Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Think about such things. Recognizing virtues will not fix us or even necessarily make us more virtuous, but it expands our Christian imaginations in our journey to loving God, loving ourselves, and loving our neighbor more fully and creatively. Now, what about the vices? They're a different beast. Why would we want to think about them? My tendency, and I suspect yours as well, is to continually justify my own actions, craft them into the most reasonable, the most understandable thoughts and actions possible, even when I know it wasn't great what I did. We begin to know ourselves better, our motivations, our failures, our temptations, when we study the vices. 
Understanding the vices helps us to move past our eternal projects of self-justification and into our true prior existing justification and our ongoing sanctification in Christ. So for this series, I've chosen to work through the seven capital vices and their remedies rather than the traditional um, seven virtues because it's Lent now. Next week, I'll begin with the traditional queen of the vices, the originator, the roots of the tree of vice, pride. And I also begin with the foundation of the virtues, the beginning and end of self-knowledge, humility. We follow in the footsteps of our medieval forebears by exploring these pairings and asking ourselves where we have fallen and how we think and act after our fall and confessing them to ourselves and to one another during this season of Lent leading up to Good Friday. It's the ultimate Lenten project, to excavate our motives out of the darkness in which we bury our actions, and to confess them. We begin to know ourselves as weak and in need of mercy and help, and to celebrate that we are so loved, so treasured, and so valuable in our limitations. I want to end with a few thoughts before we start to look at actual virtues and vices next week. The first... I'm not speaking from my superior soapbox. I'm not a perfect practitioner of the virtues, and I am quite accomplished at most of the vices, unfortunately. The second, I don't want to preach at you or make you feel guilty. I'm not interested in that. I'm also not your priest, your pastor, your spiritual director, or a trained theologian, for that matter. I'm a medievalist who works on literature and theology, and these ideas have been helpful to me in my journey of becoming more human. The third, the greatest problem with the vices and virtues is that they have been wielded like weapons against the people the church doesn't like, whatever that looks like in the church culture at the moment. But they're meant to be tools for inner work above all. They're helpful for tracing ideas and influences of the past, too. Then the inner work and historical work can help dismantle the systemic problems like poverty or racism. This little series isn't meant to be normative or even exhortative. Some of this may ring very true to you, and some of it not so much. My goal for this series is to present these words from the past, translating them into some contemporary context, and also just to think through the weird and the wonderful, the uncomfortable and the challenging. Doing so expands our Christian imaginations and spiritual vocabulary for good and evil concepts, especially in a time when such concepts have been oversimplified or flattened or narrowed or just plain lost. It's not meant to provoke an unthinking return to the past. The weird and wonderful medieval calls us to think, to examine, to probe our own hearts and minds and commitments and actions. And that's what I'm hoping for in this Lenten project. So listen and discern, have conversations with friends and mentors. And to paraphrase Augustine at the end of his wonderful book, Confessions, what human can empower another human to understand these things? That is the depths of human action and transformation. He concludes that we must keep asking, seeking, and knocking at Christ's door. And only then will we receive, find, and walk in. Thanks for listening today.
Next week, we will think about humility and pride. And if you'd like to see more of what I'm up to, make sure to sign up for my free Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond. I'm also around on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD and Instagram at Old Books with Grace. If you're a visual learner and you'd like to see this series written down instead of just listening to it, you can um, Google Old Books with Grace. And I have a website that has the text so that you can um, visually track with what I'm saying. I always love to hear from you. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Subscribe, rate, and review um, if you enjoyed. Thanks again.